We all crave connection. At our core, we all want to feel loved and understood. Hi, I'm Nechami, founder of Carmala Cosmetics, a company that produces high-performance natural beauty products and is dedicated to uniting and empowering women through the power of color. This is We Are Women, a podcast where women speak their truth and celebrate their victories. This podcast came about as a way to give a voice to all women because we all have stories to share. It's a place where we'll learn about each other and ourselves, dive into important issues that affect us, discover all that we have in common, and make some memories. So pour yourself a glass of bread and get comfortable. Every night is ladies' night, and we are women. Tonight's interview is with Andrea Hips, who is a licensed social worker as well as a CDC certified divorce coach, who through her future-focused approach helps moms navigate the tricky waters and often emotional roller coaster ride that goes along with divorce. So Andrea and I spoke about her mission, which is to revolutionize the way divorce is handled and put an end to high-stress divorce families. She does that starting with acknowledging at how the individual is co-creating the problem. So Andrea shared her personal story of divorce, being a single mom, the roller coaster of emotions she went through and that all women go through when the other woman joins the family, and the journey and work it took to get her family to where they are today, their two address families. I am so excited for you to hear her story and learn practical, tried and true methods for achieving inner fulfillment and happiness, leading to satisfaction and content in challenging situations and relations, regardless of whether the other person is involved in the healing or just you alone. Listen in and be inspired. I was probably most known as being an overachiever. If there was a club, I was going to either start it or be the president of it. If there was a possibility of winning an award, I wanted to be first in line to get it. If there was anything going on that might put me on a plane to someplace cool to be the representative of something, get sign me up. So I was one of those people who really sort of went after it. I grew up classically in, a, in the Midwest. I have two parents. I don't have any brothers or sisters. And my grandparents, three of my grandparents lived down the street from us. So my childhood was filled with water, boating, jet skiing, and attempting to make my mark in that small little town. Wow. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) So when you got married or when you were looking to get married, had you had any experience with divorced relatives or friends? No, that's the shocking part of being in this place in my life now is I grew up in a family where divorce really wasn't a storyline. We didn't know a lot of divorced people. At the time, I think if you were a child of divorce in my community, you were sort of seen as someone who was potentially going to suffer a lot more just by virtue of maybe your financial situation or your relational situation. And so divorce uh, was really not on my mind in any way. And I had no close-up experience with anybody who'd gone through it. Wow. Okay. So could you tell me a little bit about your journey with getting divorced then? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. I got married when I was in my twenties in my young twenties to a man that I called Mr. H on my interviews. And we were married for 13 years. He was a pastor during part of that time. And we had two kids during that time as well. 
And as we both reflect looking back on our marriage, I think we, the thing that we appreciate both most about each other is that the story of uh, the dissolution of our marriage is really the story of our own regrets. He's able to tell you the story of what he regretted doing and not doing in our relationship. And I'm able to tell the story of doing and not doing what I regret in our relationship. And so as we were, were, were growing our family and moving into new career opportunities, we don't totally know what happened. And for those of your listeners who are getting divorced, I think there is an urgency to try to make meaning, to try to figure it out to try to point a finger, to try to get the fault assigned. Because once you can do that, you can figure it out. The truth is most people don't really know at the end of the day why they divorced. They haven't spent enough time contemplating what their part was. They spend most of their time contemplating what the part is of the other person. Right. That's so interesting because I've definitely seen that with the people who in my life who have been divorced. So let me ask you a question then. Like if someone doesn't know why they got divorced, then could it be possible to work on the marriage and not get divorced? I think most people, when they are going through a relationship tension, want to resolve it and want to resolve it mostly by identifying what the other person needs to do, not do, or change in order for the relationship to work. And so, yes, I do think there is a lot of possibility for people to put their marriages back together. And as a divorce coach, I would say my, I am, I have a bias toward marriage because I do think you're either going to figure out the problems that you have with this person while you are married or when you get divorced, you don't get to escape the problem, right? Because especially when children are involved, divorce might mean the end of your marriage, but it doesn't mean the end of your relationship. So those things that still annoyed you, bothered you, troubled you when you were married are the things that are going to annoy, bother, and trouble you when you're divorced, unless you start tackling them with some sort of conscious effort to resolve them. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes total sense. So, so in my own story, when I think back on the struggle of my divorce, what happens when you first go through it is you go through those traditional stages of, of denial and anger and bargaining, right? The sort of typical stages of grief. And it becomes a very, very dark time. That was a tremendously painful, dark time in my life. The routines that you rely on evaporate. Your ability to sort of eat and drink with any sort of predictability goes away. You forget what's going on in your own life. You're not available for what's going on in anyone else's life. You're simply trying to survive. And when I was in that, and when maybe your listeners are in that too, you feel like it's never going to end. You feel like this is my new normal. And the only way out of this is there's no way out of it. I've just become a victim of sort of the divorce machine, and I'm going to have to sit in this pain for the rest of my life. And what I learned from really investing myself in self-growth, in journaling, in reading, in counseling, in therapy, in coaching, where I got to was that this was not the end. It was the end of one thing, but it was going to be the beginning of another thing. And I think when people are in the midst of divorce, they have a very, very hard time seeing that there is a possibility on the other side of divorce that can actually be beautiful, even if divorce wasn't, it wasn't your choice to have it. Right. Okay. That makes total sense. Yeah. When did you become a therapist? 
Sure. I'm a licensed social worker, and I have been a social worker since the late 90s, and more recently have become a certified divorce coach and a certified divorce transition and recovery coach. And I help moms generally who are trying to get rid of their divorce debris and create beautiful two address families. And that is something that when I was going through my own divorce, that was very hard for me was when I would look around in the landscape of other, the landscape of other divorced families or divorced women, there wasn't a single woman or family that I wanted to model myself or my family after. And that was a sad realization. The people I saw that were, were living in post-divorce realities were bitter, angry, resentful. They had a really hard time managing their stress. They had a really hard time managing their co-parent or their relationship to their co-parent. And nothing about that was appealing to me. And that's part of the darkness of divorce, right? You just think, well, now I'm, I'm on side B of the record. Like I just got into the worst part of my life and not the best part. And so that was part of what I was fighting for was there is a way to make this beautiful. It's not going to be traditional and it's not going to be normal, but I will get there. That's such a great attitude. So did you utilize your social worker background with your own family while you were going through the divorce like with your kids? Excellent question. Absolutely. I mean, social work is about, at its core, a strengths perspective about life. What strengths do you bring and what strengths do the other parties bring to the situation? And in my particular story of divorce recovery, the one thing that saved me was that perspective. And I met with a spiritual director at some point along the path. And she said to me, what would it be like if you wanted deep peace and freedom for your former partner, no matter what that meant for you? And that stopped me in my tracks. I mean, I was like, no, I don't want deep peace and freedom for him. I want it for myself and I want him to have endless torture and suffering. I mean, that was my real heart in the start, right? And so I said, I'm, I'm intrigued by what you're saying. I have no idea how to get there, but it sounds useful. And she challenged me at that time to do three gratitudes for Mr. H every morning in bed. Don't get out of bed before you do them and no repeats. And let me just tell you, <laughs> there were some quiet mornings, some long quiet mornings in bed while I accepted that challenge. But what happened over time was I started to see what he was in full. And what happens a lot of times with divorced women is we villainize the person that is leaving us or that we are leaving. They become sort of dark, evil, you know, public enemy number one. And what this process of gratitude did for me was it started to help me see the things that were going to be the building blocks of what was next. Because he would probably never stop being A, B, and C, but wow, I sure hope he never stops being D, E, and F, right? So when you can start to see your former partner in full relief and give equal airtime to both the limits that they bring, which are inevitable, but the blessings that they bring, right? Then you can start to tell not only a better story for yourself, but for your kids. Your kids don't wanna have the dad who's the villain. Your kid wants to have the dad who's the hero. And so the story in our lives after that deep work, after that gratitude work is your dad is a hero. 
And here's all the reasons why you need to call him on this issue. You need to touch base with him on this. And we need to celebrate when he's doing this. We don't put the flashlight, the spotlight on what he can't be no more than he puts the spotlight on what I can't be, right? We're working from our strengths perspective. So I would say that's how social work really tied in was being able to take the best of us forward. Yeah, I love that. And I feel like that's the healthiest approach for anything in life. Just somehow managing to find the positive and search for it. Sometimes you have to dig for it in the situation or with the other person. And that kind of changes your whole mentality and your attitude. It does. And I think the thing that is hard for people is when you go through a divorce, everybody knows there's sort of team mom and team dad, right? People sort of separate out naturally and they get on the team of one of the other partners. And when we do that, it's partly because we're, we're tribal people, right? At our core, we want to have community and we want to have connection. And when you get divorced, you are now exposed in a place where your sense of belonging is really threatened. And so you're trying to rally as many people as you can to your side. This is a very natural thing to do, and I don't fault anyone that does it. You are rallying them out of a sort of primal need to make sure that you're going to be okay and that you still have community. But what happens is in order, you think that in order to win that community and in order to keep that community close to you, you need to be the victim. You need to have the sadder story. You need to be the one that suffered and dealt with and put up with and still has to, because then you're a sympathetic creature that your community will want to rally around. And maybe that's okay at the beginning, but unfortunately for a lot of divorced women, that becomes the place from which they live out the next several decades of their lives. And that is a dead end road for your own happiness. And so I really like to work with people to become less victim, more creator. How do you work with your story? How do you let go of the story, really, and set it down to be able to pick up a new one where you're the hero and not just the victim? Right. That's incredible. That's really great. So could you tell me a little bit about living your life as a single mom? Sure. Those were tough days. <laughs> the one thing you realize is the trash isn't going out unless you take it out. And that thing that just broke, there's nobody around to help you troubleshoot how to fix it. Um, the things that happen when divorced women move into being um, single moms are, you have two choices. One is you, you sort of become this, this sympathetic victim in your own story, or you start to become the hero. And I, every divorced mom that I've ever talked to, every client of mine, and even every friend of mine who's gone through divorce has a story of, oh my gosh, I'm awesome. And for me, it was when I figured out how to start the blessed lawnmower. It was time for the lawn to get mowed. And I did, I hear it is sitting here. There's buttons to push. There's things to pull. I have absolutely no idea what to do here. And I sat with it. I probably sat with it for an hour before I figured out exactly how to do it and how to keep it running. And if I didn't mow that lawn, like I was queen of Lakeside Drive, I just felt like a total champion. And I get messages all the time from, from friends and clients who are like, I completely figured this out for myself. And what it is, is a, a rediscovering of your own power. And, and necessarily during marriage, we lean on each other. We learn how to lean on each other. That's what we're supposed to do. And when that person isn't there to lean on anymore, that vacuum gets filled by either despair or your own rising up. And so it's really fun to hear the stories of people who choose to rise up in those moments. For sure. Yeah, that's so great. It's like the little things, you know? 
It is. It's well, the little things become the the Big ladder things. upon which you can build. Yeah, exactly. Right. To get to the bigger things. So for sure. And what was it like for your kids? You know, that's an interesting question. And I think over time as their dad and I parent them through this very big moment in their lives, I would say there was a lot of, uh, a lot of confusion, I think on their part, I think they picked up on the confusion of their parents. And as we were trying to navigate that, there is a time where sort of everybody, everybody falls apart in some way. And William Bridges has this great, um, transition curve that I use with my clients that talks about sort of how we all go through this. If you can picture sort of a, a line going straight and then it dips down and then it comes back up. And along that curve with divorce, you sort of go through, you go through anger and, and disillusionment. And when you get down to the bottom, you get into this very neutral phase of not really knowing what's going to happen next. And then as you start to recover more, you get impatient and you start to get hopeful and you start to see possibility, right? So everybody follows that curve. What's interesting in, um, and with any transition, divorce or, or starting college or, or starting a new job, what's interesting is everybody in the family, in a family that's going through a divorce has their own curve. So let's say there's the person who's more interested in having the divorce. They move along that curve far before their partner does they might be getting to the impatient, hopeful possibility stage a year or more before their partner does. So now their impatience and excitement is colliding with their partner's despair, denial, and anger. Well, so then the two adults start to get through their curve. Then you bring the kids into it. When you do that announcement, they've now started their own curve. So the reason divorced families feel this complete chaos is because everybody is on a different part of that curve all at the same time, typically under the same house. And so my family was no different from that. We all had to go through a grieving process and a, and a renormalizing and while my kids now enjoy a, a two address family to the extent that they can, that is a hard break for children. There is a lot of adjustment that's going on for them. And, and like I said, my kids included in that. That's so interesting. I've never thought of that curve before. Yeah. And it really does explain the reason why people get so hurt when people move on to new relationships while they are still in divorce or while they are really quickly after divorce, right? Is because people go through that curve often very silently and they don't pull in a whole lot of people along with them every, while they're doing it, right? right? And so you see the you you see the the mom whose husband has moved on to another relationship and she's just starting her curve. She's in denial, she's in anger, she's in a lot of pain and she's like how is he already doing this? How is he already there? But he may have walked through some portion of that curve without bringing her in. That's so and interesting. So, and, and, and then we could talk about the other woman if you, if you would like to, because there's a lot packed in that for people when they're going through that curve. For sure. Yeah. I'd love to hear your story of like who got married, we married first and like how you dealt with the other woman. Sure. In my story, my first husband started another relationship with a woman and she became part of our family for a number of years. And the story of, of the other woman or the next woman is a really tricky one for us, especially as mothers. 
And the presence of another woman, regardless of whether she is Mary Poppins to your children or, or the sort of classically stereotyped evil stepmother, it doesn't really matter. They trigger us just by existing. They trigger our sense of status as a mother. So who am I as a mom if now there's all of a sudden another mom who just jumped in and didn't participate in the first many years of my kids' life, gets access to them on holidays, has time with them. Your status as a mom feels very threatened. Next is your sense of certainty. Now all of a sudden there's her and her whole family and maybe her kids. And maybe the Saturday isn't just hanging out with dad. It's going to visit her mom or it's going to different uh, cultural events that maybe don't line up with the culture that you were lined up with. There's so many places where that uncertainty just explodes in your heart. The next thing it triggers is your autonomy, your ability to move freely in your situation without anybody getting in your way. Yeah, you did Christmas and it started at 7 a.m. on Christmas morning. Well, maybe she wants it to start at 8. And maybe she wants it to start at 8 because she has a health condition and she can't get out of bed earlier. Whatever it is, right? There is now another person whose opinions, beliefs, thoughts, and behaviors are impinging upon how you did family. You also get triggered. This is just, just a big mess. You also get triggered relationally in the sense of you now don't know if you belong. When your kids go to the, their other parent's house and she's there, now all of a sudden you're on the outside. You're the one who isn't doing the family things and they're going out to the movies together and they're baking cookies and they're going to dinner. And so you're over here going, wait, do I even belong in the family? because I don't know how to belong in a family where she's there. I don't get how to do this, right? And then finally, it's your sense of fairness that gets triggered. It is not fair. Most of my clients are just adamant. It is not fair that this woman gets to sort of take my husband in some cases or, or move in so quickly and start acting as though they are a parent to this kid. That is the mess of the other woman. Now, it's one thing to look at the mess and people will spend lots and lots and lots of time talking about their mess. It's another thing to start to be able to work with the story. And the way I worked with the story was by starting to identify those triggers, right? I feel threatened that I'm not going to be the mom because now there's another person. I'm scared everything's going to be different and I'm not certain about where it's going to go. I don't like the feeling that she might call the shots sometimes. I don't like feeling like I'm on the outside of the family and I don't like feeling like this is fair that she has equal access to my kids. Those were real, hard, difficult things for me to ingest. The natural course of events is then to villainize her. That's the natural course of events. Your listeners are doing that. It's totally normal. What you have to do and what I had to do was start to come up with game plans to solve those trigger spots for myself, by myself. Most people want to start having conversations with the other woman and telling her what to do and what not to do so that you're not triggered anymore. And the truth of the matter is you're always gonna be triggered. You're always gonna be triggered. The key is to have a strategy for what you're going to do with yourself when it happens. Wow. Yeah, that was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, it makes total sense. Everything you said, because it just does. It's human nature. It is. It's human nature. And so how the trick with divorce and, and, and living in a beautiful post-divorce family is learning how to 
manage those triggers in a way that is supportive of the family you want to be in. So for example, I early on in my divorce pictured a time in the future. It was actually my children's weddings. I pictured my children's weddings and I pictured myself being at those. And I got very, very specific on how I wanted to look and feel in relationship to their dad and to whomever their dad was with at that time. Once I could picture that, and what I pictured was a very magnanimous person, right? I pictured smiling at him. I pictured reserving a seat for him next to me. I pictured us dancing together, celebrating what we had made. There was, there was a, a vision that my heart had no idea how I was going to get to, right? But I put it out there. And I have since that time reverse engineered that life every day since. And that includes my relationship with the, the woman that he dated after me. How I did that was realizing everything she did and everything she didn't do was an invitation for me to come back home to myself. My status getting triggered as a mom, oh, I'm not going to be a mom anymore. Okay, let's sit with that. Do I really believe that the love my children have has to get cut in half in order for them to love her and me? Is that my core belief? No. My core belief is that love, get, love gets bigger. Okay, so when we send our kids over to that house, what are we going to say to ourselves? I love that love is big enough to hold both of us. I love that I get to send them into more love. That's how I handled status. And I just went through each one of those. With certainty, it was like, okay, I, I'm not very certain about what kind of messages might get taught there. But I want to put my spotlight on the ones that I love. My um, first husband's next partner was an amazing woman who empowered other women. She was very into those stories and had a very interesting backstory of her own. And she shared that with my kids in ways that opened their eyes. I was going to be certain that I could count on her to give very heroic pro-woman, pro-power stories. That's what I knew I could be certain of. When, I, when my autonomy was triggered, which was my ability to sort of move around in the world, what did I really want anyway? What was I looking for? Complete tyranny and control over her life? No. I had to go back and go, this new life is going to require me to be flexible in very different ways and in ways that might actually work out for me. And then when it came to relatedness and a sense of family, when I felt like I was on the outside of the family, do you know who was putting me there? Me. There was no message coming from that other house that I wasn't welcome or belonged. And so how do I make this a two address family? and not a one-address family and a one-address family? How do we start living as though we have these points of connection that make us one family, right? And then finally, the sense of fairness. That's always a tricky one, right? What's fair? My definition of forgiveness is letting people get away with it because they're going to anyway. And so how, do you, how did I just take on the inherent unfairness of the situation and start working with from here forward, what are we going to do? Because I can't unravel and rewrite the backstory. Wow. That's so cool. So it's really about like reframing your thoughts to change your feelings about things. It absolutely is. And it's also realizing that the other people don't get to dictate how it's going to go for you. And I think divorcing moms often feel at the mercy of their former spouse when it comes to creating a beautiful family. And I would like very much to dispel that. It does not require the participation of your former partner or of their new partner to make a beautiful family. I think people um, 
errantly try to move into co-parenting too quickly. They try to, all of a sudden, we're going to dismantle everything that was our marriage, our passion and our commitment and our fondness for each other. And now, sweet, we're going to co-parent. It's going to be awesome. I love you and you do everything right. No, they do everything wrong the same way they did when you were married. So instead of co-parenting, I really encourage people at the start to parallel parent. Parent the heck out of your situation. Do it the absolute best during the time that you have them and be an interpreter of what's happening at the other house when it's not aligning with yours. Be a positive interpreter. People need to get pulled away first before they can re-engage in creating something. Co-parenting means someone sits down with you and says, I wanna do this with you. That's not what happens at the start of a divorce. You're gonna do it on your own. That's such a great point because that's such an empowering point really because you don't need the other person to feel happy and satisfied and empowered. You could just do it yourself. And that's huge. It's huge. And it is a message that divorced women are the opposite message of which divorced women are sold on a regular basis. And that is why the frustration and the disappointment levels are so high because he's not showing up. They don't have the great story of what is his name? Lenny Kravitz, you know, and he, he's just this amazing dad and everybody loves him and his ex-wife loves him and his ex-wife's new partner loves him and everything's so great. There were decisions made along the way for them to do that together. If you do not have a former partner who wants to do it together with you, you need to figure out how to do it yourself and take the pressure off of them. One of the ways that we love people best is by allowing them to be themselves. We don't love them by trying to manage them. We don't love them by giving them a script to read from. We love them by allowing them to be themselves. When they are themselves, in full relief, again, equal airtime for the limits and for the blessings, the whole system works better. For sure, for sure. So did it get easier for you once you got married, remarried? Um, No, I don't think it got easier for me. I think that, you know, I was so surprised to be getting married again. I think uh, most people who go through divorce are like, I'm done. I'm I'm done with marriage. I'm done with love. I'm never going to do this again. And for most of those people, it does sneak up on them again. And it snuck up on me. And I'm so grateful that it did. But getting married didn't change fundamentally the same triggers that I was being faced with when I was a single mom that sense of belonging and that sense of, of being at the head of the family and being able to have control over the elements of the family, I still didn't have 100% access to that. And if anything, getting married sort of exposed that even more and exposed my own longing for it to be different. And that's the part I would say was the biggest struggle for me was the line in my head was, it shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be this way. And if it shouldn't be this way, then everything I'm doing while it is this way, is kind of just an attempt to try to live through it, just sort of make, make it through. And the challenge for me was to really get zero in on that thought of it shouldn't be this way and start experimenting with something new. And the first experiment was, well, it could be this way. It, it could be this way. And if it was, and if it could be this way, how could I be in it? while it was this way. And that's when I started to be able to dream a bigger story for what our family could look like and what I could look like as sort of the chief narrator and the chief storyteller of our little collection of people. Wow. That's wonderful. It really is. But that, that, that doesn't, that doesn't come, that doesn't alight upon you. And I think most people think 
they get to receive a great co-parenting relationship or they get to sort of have a great post-divorce family. No, you will work harder than you ever have on yourself. And that's the only person that needs to show up for it. Right, right. That makes total sense. Yeah. I think that really applies to a lot of things in life, not only about divorced parents, you know, it's, it's really about just acknowledging your part in whatever the situation is and working on that. hundred percent. And I, and I think that the issue for people sort of, so, so there's a book uh, Richard Rohr wrote called um, Falling Upwards. And in it, he talks about the second half of life. And he says, the second half of life starts for people when they encounter an issue that their will or their ego cannot overcome. And so for some people, the second half of life starts when they're 13 and they're in a, in a, a life-changing accident, right? For some people, the second half of life starts after they lose a child in their 30s. Your second, you get various invitations to your second half of life. And divorce is one of those invitations. And once you are able to face that you can no longer forcefully make happen what you want to have anymore in life, you get to either become brittle and rigid on that topic, or you get to go on the greatest journey to uncovering how to live with it. And then ultimately how to help everybody around you do the same thing. So divorce is just one of the issues for some people. It's, it's weight loss for other people. It's, it's the death of the spouse or it's a loss of their health. Um, we all have an issue that prompts us or invites us, right, to go inside. We don't have to do it, but we we could do it if we want to. And I'm I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to do it. As my Angelou said, I wouldn't give anything for my journey now, right? But in the midst of it, when it's dark and it's cold and you're really not sure which way is up, you really do wonder if you're ever gonna piece it back together again. For sure, for sure. Yeah. So now at this point, what's it like with your two families? Well, I would call it one family. We're a two-address family. Um, what's it like? That's a great question. It's pretty great, to be honest with you. It's pretty great because it could be this way, and it's going to be this way. And we've had a number of different people come in and out of our lives, people that my first husband dated. Um, now, I dated a few people and I'm now married to someone. And throughout that, we have learned how to give each other the right amount of space and the right amount of connectedness. And, you know, they always say that time heals. And I always challenge that statement with time put to good use heals. Um, <laughs> mostly if you don't put it to good use, time just helps you forget quicker, uh, but it's still there. And so, you know, we live in the same town. We live about 10 minutes from each other. Our children uh, enjoy both homes and we try to keep them at the center of what's going on for us. And that's really hard because you spend a lot of time when you're married with the message that you need to put your marriage first. And then all of a sudden, when you get divorced, you need to put the kids first. And it's a really hard transition, I think, for people to figure that out because putting the kids first isn't a universally understood principle in terms of how someone might interpret it, right? So sometimes putting the kids first means dad needs to hop on a call to make money to pay for basketball camp. And sometimes putting the kids first means mom needs to go away with her girlfriends for a weekend and regroup. But there, do you know what I'm saying? So there's a lot of different ways to interpret what does it mean for us to actually put our kids first? And 
I'm grateful for the participation of my children's dad. He's been able to do that as much as humanly possible, and I have too. And so we really do get to enjoy now the fruits of both of our labors. But again, our labors were not together. The work that he did on himself, totally separate from me. The work that I did on myself, totally separate from him. Yeah. Wow. That's great. So, okay. Yeah. Well, we covered a lot here. Okay. (laughs) So how old were your kids at the time of the divorce and how old are they now? They were, I think it it sort of started around uh, age three and five, three and six. And now they are um, 12 and 15. And there's no doubt in my mind that they would prefer to have both of their parents living at the same address. I think that is the story of the heart of most um, children who live in divorce, unless, of course, there was a situation where they were in harm's way and and prefer to be away from that situation. Um, That is part of the story. That's part of the lump that they're going to have in life, right? But one of the things that we're also learning is how to work with what we have, how to make something beautiful out of something that most people don't, and how to take seriously our responsibility to help others see that there is a way through Um, the change from marriage to divorce that allows everybody to live well and not live under the sort of outside pressure to just become a typical statistic of divorce. That there's, there's something about our family that needs to show people that it can be done differently and it should be. Right. For sure. I'm sure you're an inspiration for other people around you. Well, I hope to be, but again, I I don't want it to, I, I fear that it can sort of come across as this Pollyanna story of, oh, I got divorced and it was awesome and now everything's great now. Those early days were so profoundly dark. I remember taking a walk one night and I I lived in Michigan at the time and I put on a coat and it was snowing and I, I literally laid down in the snow and I thought, I don't know if I can keep going. I don't know if my body will keep supporting this story. And there were many nights like that, and they made up a period of many years. And the difference is what I did was refuse to stop believing that we can make love bigger in this situation. And we can make this story different. And we can make something that our children, a story that our children still want to be a part of. It's really beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Wow. What was the most challenging part, would you say? Because you were just talking about how you had this really hard night and you like lay down in the snow. So what was like the most challenging part, would you say, that created that feeling? I would say the hardest part was the, the deafening no that was happening inside of my head, that I did not want this and I could not stop it. It was just this overwhelming feeling of powerlessness. And then again, being surrounded by families of divorce that were not inspiring, that were dark and sad. It just felt like the curtain was being closed on my life and everything that was going to be happening after that was just going to be a disappointment. And instead, actually on my my second wedding, the invitation to my second wedding was actually a, a playbill like you would get in a in a, in a theater oh, for, a, yeah. for a play. And, and the first act, when you opened it up in the first act, when you read it, it talked about the lives that my 
new husband and I had prior to meeting each other. And it talked about my marriage and it talked about the various people he spent time with. And then there was an intermission in the playbill. And that was the night that we connected and started to realize this might be a relationship. And we felt that we were starting act two and act two was just as important as act one. In fact, it built on everything that we learned and succeeded at and failed at in act one. And I wanted people, myself, my kids, and the audience of our wedding to see this is a story. And it is a story that we want to live in. This isn't, oh, she finally got it right. There was nothing that I got wrong about my first marriage. It was what was there, it was what was needed, and it was what was learned. And it informs everything that I do in my second marriage as well. Wow. I love your positive take on everything. How you're taking like a, yeah, like anything negative, you're just like reframing, you know? And, and that is the work that I do with my clients because in fact, I I had one um, person that I talked to who had another, had an other woman situation, right? They did not like this person at all. They didn't like their job. They didn't like their look. They didn't like their vibe. And they said to me, I can't stand that my kids are being so nice to her. (laughs) And I thought that makes sense, right? Because it would be helpful if they didn't like her, because if they do like her, then they might want to spend time with her. And then that would mean less time with mom. And there could be all kinds of problems with that. But I said to her, so you've raised the kind of kid or the kind of children who want to welcome new people into their lives. Way to go, mom. Right. You did that. You made them the kind of person who wants to, you've also made them the kind of kids who want to figure out how to make something beautiful out of their lives sorry that you did that. But there, there's always a way. And, and I don't do that as fluff. I don't say, oh, just take that thing, put sunshine on it. It's not about that. The way we think about our stories affects the way we act in them. And so we have really got to parse out and look in a very granular way at what we are telling ourselves. Because when we can start telling ourselves, I love that my kids have been so open to her, I could actually maybe learn from them. That's a whole different story than what the heck is she doing here? And why are they being so nice to her? This is going to ruin everything. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And then it helps your clients reframe it in their own minds. And when you start thinking positive thoughts, you start feeling positive and good about the situation. Yeah. Provided the thoughts are believable, right? Right. I think the the problem with divorced, uh, divorced, um, I don't know, I don't want to say theory, but sort of the, the thing we expect from our divorced people is be awesome. Just, just smile, put the kids first and do the right thing. And, and I think that's a great um, admonition, right? For everybody, that is what we should do. But that in the beginning requires a lot of willpower and it requires a lot of faking it till you make it. And it requires a lot of, I don't feel this way, but I'm going to do this and a lot of gritted teeth. And the problem is you cannot hold on to that for the two decades that it takes to raise your children. It doesn't work. You cannot fake it for that many years. It's going to come out sideways. So really, it's about learning how to get your heart and your mouth to line up. And that's the real art of divorce coaching is how do I say nice things, positive things that I actually believe, not that I'm just parroting because somebody told me it's the right thing to say. For sure. Absolutely. And now that you mentioned that about divorce coaching, I'm just curious to know, since you are a licensed therapist, why do you call yourself a coach as well? Like, why don't you just stick with the therapy with, with a focus, I'm sorry, with, with a focus on divorce? Sure. Well, I'm a licensed social worker and I practice and I can practice in the state of Arizona. 
I am informed by my social work background, but coaching has a very different perspective. And um, Tara Eisenhardt, who's another great divorce coach, has a way of describing it that that therapists focus on if you could picture sort of having a suitcase and it's packed with all the things in your life, they talk with you about why is this thing here and why did you put it this way and why did it go this way and would it be better if we put it over here, right? Coaches shut the suitcase, pick it up and start looking at your future and going, where do you want to be while you take this with you? Where do you want to be and what do you want it to look like? And I just think I am a naturally future-focused person. I experienced a tremendous benefit from being able to picture a life that I wanted to live in and reverse engineering my way to it. I also think that therapists are about uncovering and, and recovering things that have gone on in your past and then attempt to make sense of them. And they are a valuable part of your divorce recovery team. Coaches are about discovering what is next, what is coming and who you want to be in it. And so it's really just, it's, we're, we're in a continuum. I just prefer to work in the continuum that puts me in a place where people are starting to build something new because mm-hmm. I think that's what divorce requires. Okay. Yeah. I was just curious about why you <laughs> chose. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. So Ending off, this is the question that I ask everyone. What is something that you hope the next generation of women won't have to struggle with? Thinking that divorce is a dead end with a dead end family to go with it. I want women to know that if you are faced with divorce, you can do it differently and you can do it better and you can make something just as beautiful, if not more beautiful than the marriage that you came from. That's my deepest hope. Love it. Um, okay. And then where can people find you if they want to learn more about you? Sure. I have a website. It's my name, Andrea hips, There's two P's and hips. I also am an Instagram and on Facebook with the same name. And I have an email list that I send out weekly, how to get through this sort of emails for divorcing folks. And I have a free practical communication guide for communicating with your former partner, even when they're difficult, that's to be found on my website. And then you can also schedule a a free call on that website. I'm happy to talk with anybody and just sort of give them some pointers on their way to see if coaching is the right thing for them or if therapy is the right thing for them. And uh, just like I said, give them a few suggestions to help them march in the right direction. That's great. Thank you so much for joining me tonight, Andrea. I really appreciate you sharing your story and all your insights and knowledge. It's going to be so helpful for people. Thank you so much for having me. It was a total privilege. Thank you. That's all for tonight. Thanks so much for listening. Connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Carmela Cosmetics. That's Carmela with a K. And on our website, CarmelaCosmetics.com. If there's a woman in your life whose story needs to be heard, send me a message to let me know who she is and why she means so much to you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know your thoughts. We want you to feel heard. 